All right. Well, we are here. Episode 51. 51. Every, Pretty good. In, in, in a few years' time, 51. Divide that by 36 months, and that's how often we do this. Yeah, that's not bad. Um, so go ahead. Get us started off, Nisa. Yeah. So welcome to episode 51 of Creative Moonlighting Podcast. We are so happy to have our guest today, who is Luis Puron right? Executive Director of the Rockport Center for the Arts. Um, we are most excited because we got to meet Luis through Kent Olberg, who is right. the subject of the documentary film that Matthew is making. And um, what we know about Luis and we want to hear more about is that you are very dedicated to fostering creativity and supporting artists. Um, we have to we can say firsthand that um, that you have been nothing but supportive of the Olberg documentary, and we're so appreciative of that. Um, under Luis's leadership, the Rockport Center has become a thriving hub for artistic expression and community engagement here in Rockport. And in this episode, we delve into your journey um, as an arts leader. Um, we want to hear uh, more about your passion for nurturing talent and also discussing upcoming projects that are coming here at um, the Rockport Art Center. Um, and then lastly, just learn from you. You have a lot of knowledge and expertise to share about fundraising, about building community and appreciation for the arts. And so I'll stop uh, talking here and let us get into the conversation. So thank you. Well, first you. of all, welcome to my home. I hope that you enjoy your uh, visit here. And uh, yes, I'm ready to answer all the questions. Uh, there's a lot, a lot that's on your mind. And so do you want to start with a specific topic? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I do. Number one, the artwork in your house is incredible. Every room, I, I'm just going to describe it for the people yes, who can't see yes, it. Yes, absolutely. Every room. I, can, I mean, I'm just going to estimate there must be, there's got to be a, a hundred plus pieces. In yeah, house, it's, right? it's a real it's illness. Been. And I keep <laughs> telling myself that I shouldn't buy any more art. And I was just on a trip to uh, Santa Fe and Marfa and San Antonio and then Austin. And of course, you know, I said to myself, I'm not going to buy any art. And what do I do? I, I buy art in uh, Marfa. <laughs> which I showed you earlier. Yeah. It's a beautiful piece by an artist that I really love her work, Liz Potter, that has taken this agave plant, and it looks like a, a negative of a, a of a photograph, and she's like covered it in this veil or like almost like a bag that's translucent, but it's almost like a lenticular because as you walk across that piece, it changes as you know, depending on where you are standing in front of it. So, uh, and that's immediately just in walking in here, you and I have now known each other for just a few months. And, uh, I first of all felt very connected cause you were just so mm -hmm. welcoming and so nice, mm -hmm. such a kind person and supporter of the arts and, and what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but immediately on walking in here, I was like, Oh, Mm -hmm. He's addicted to art. That's for <laughs> yes. sure. It's definitely an addiction. And I don't know what I'm going to do with all this. You know, <laughs> uh, If I ever have to move out of this house, it's going to be a challenge. So I think I've made a decision of what's going to happen to this art collection. Uh, because, you know, at some point I'm going to retire from uh, public life and uh, I'm not going to have 
the amount of wall space that I have here. So I will have to make some choices. You Ooh. you do you do know what you're going to do with Should it? Should we ask you to reveal <laughs> some of those <laughs> or choices well, or those I, held? Close? I would like to auction it off and have it benefit. Um, Hopefully the Rockport Center for the Arts. Oh, so, wow. oh well, that's a good segue. Yeah, we are, are trying to, um, the, one of my goals this year at the Rockport Center for the Arts is building an endowment so that, you know, we have 22,000 square feet of space, a beautiful, you know, 16, 17,000 square foot sculpture garden. And um, it's a lot to maintain. And we do already do have an endowment, but I would like to, create another endowment that's more substantial that, um, you know, future leaders can tap for their maintenance and operation budgets. It's not that we can't afford to be in those uh, buildings right now. We can. We're able to raise the funds to run them. But, you know, the economy is never always the same. It's Mm -hmm. not beautiful like it is right now or steady. Uh, We've been very, very blessed here to... Uh, enjoy a very um, great economic status with our organization. I think the new facilities really assisted us with, you know, increasing the amount and the level of revenue that we can get. And then the different types of revenue that we are now able to get because we have dedicated space for a whole variety of new programs that were not there before December 10th of 2022. Um, Yet, um, you know, organizations go through ups and downs, and I would like, you know, um, this endowment to protect the organization into the future. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, so, and, and, and I guess maybe that's one of the best places to start is just your experience uh, you know, I have all kinds of questions about prior to 2015, which I think we can get into. But uh, just to start it off, uh, when you came here in 2015, it's the first entry into working in the arts, right? Uh, yes, it was. So what, maybe just walk us through that. How it happened? Yeah, or, how it yeah. happened and, and, and maybe why too. Well, I had moved back to Texas in 2014 to be closer to my family. You know, my my mother is getting older. She's eighty. She's gonna be eighty-one this year, and uh, and I had lived away for uh, almost fourteen years uh, in Pennsylvania, and uh, it was sort of my turn to be back here and be closer to them. Um, I felt like you know the family had always been in my <clears throat> back burner because I was pursuing my aspirations for a career and all of that. And I felt a little guilty. I honestly, I felt a lot of guilt, a lot of guilt about it. I still do, that I've been away for so many years. Uh, and so I came back, and I started looking for work. <clears throat> I was living in Austin, Texas, when I moved back. And um, hook them. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hook'em. Why Austin? No. Hook'em horns. <laughs> oh, hook'em. I thought you said how come. Oh. <laughs> did I was sound like, just like it, actually. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I have to throw uh, that in. How come? I was, like, I was going to mention the traffic, but anyway, yeah. I know you don't want to talk about that. No, no. So anyway, um, yeah, and I was, you know, and the thing about Austin was nobody thought I was as wonderful as I thought I was, and nobody was really interviewing me or hiring me. And the few interviews I did have, it I think, you know, maybe because of my experience, you know, my resume was pretty, you know, um, intense, I guess. My last job was pretty intense and it had 
uh, I've had a lot of experiences. I think it may have been a little threatening to some of the people that were hiring me. So then I decided, you know, to look at this in a different way, uh, at my job search a different way. And I started uh, looking for jobs where I would be an arts administrator. And I just visualized that. And I told everybody, I want a position in an arts nonprofit organization where I can use my business skills to make sure that this organization will thrive. Uh, and the reason I said that is because I had served on so many boards of directors of different nonprofits uh, across uh, not only in Texas, but also in Pennsylvania. Uh, and I had seen all the mistakes that they made financially. And so I wanted to use my business background in an organization that would benefit from that, that, you know, needed, you know, to succeed. And when I review the job description, which my brother is the one that actually showed it to me uh, from a publication called Glass Tire, it's in Houston, Texas. He said you should apply for this. And the day he showed it to me was actually the last day that you could apply mm, for the job. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said it's got a really good reputation. They're, they've had a wonderful curator. Uh, and um, anyway, we, sh we think that you should apply for it. And I said, okay. So I applied for it. And But the reason I really was attracted to the job was because in one of the lines it said capital project and I had never built anything before. My father was a frustrated architect who um, was involved in the family business, but what he really wanted to do was to become an architect. And we had a little ranch in Mexico and in that ranch, he built this wonderful uh, house and he built a wonderful palapa, you know, like a bar mm -hmm. outside. And then there was a little, Esplanade of grass where we would play uh, soccer, you know, football, soccer. Um, we call it football in, in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Or we played badminton or whatever, you know, volleyball. We'd stretch the net and play there. And then across from that esplanade of grass was a swimming pool. And then in another part of the property, we had, um, we had um, uh, horses. And so we would ride horses. We would go out with a cowboy. We'd ride all morning, we'd come back, we'd swim, we'd have a lot of fun. Uh, my brothers and uh, my sister would come and other members of the family, and it was just a really enjoyable place. Anyway, the reason I'm telling you that is, is because, you know, I too, you know, always wanted to uh, work in an arts organization, but I didn't know how to quite make that happen. I had not studied the right career. I had not done the right things to get me there. I was not an artist. I was not a studio artist. I wasn't any of those things. But what I did know that I have uh, had was great, you know, business skills, and I was great with finance, and I was very good with managing money. And uh, so, um, the capital project, back to that, uh, was really interesting to me because I knew that. I think what it said on the job description was that they had outgrown the size of their facility and they wanted to move in the direction of, you know, building a new building. And little did I know all of the challenges that were associated with that, you know, with that little line in the job description. But I found out, you know, I found out once I accepted the job and I started working here in May of 2015 
And uh, in September of 2015, I hosted a strategic planning retreat mm -hmm. to begin to craft the um, basically the roadmap of how we were going to go about, you know, A, raising money for a new building and then B, actually building the new building. And then, you know, Hurricane Harvey happened. And so I'm going to pause there for a minute and just, you know, see if you have any questions about what I just said and, or I can continue with my train of thought. I do. I'm, that, that was actually, number, <laughs> first of eerie. all. It was eerie because it connected probably so closely with Matthew because you said many things that um, his dad, Matthew's dad is a Mason. So he's a bricklayer uh -huh. by trade, but always wanted to be an architect. Wow. Well, and he, well, he owned his own business and, and it was, um, I guess because he was a builder, there was a, uh, a part of him that I think, and, and I was actually just talking with this or about this with him a week ago. And, um, as a builder, you know, what he, what he kind of realized about architects as well was, was that, you know, he had ideas mm -hmm. like that. He didn't, he, he didn't have the same, uh, qualification or whatever, but, but essentially the builders become, if they have ideas of their own and they can pull them off, it's pretty incredible what they can do. And, and so you mentioned this setup at your house as a kid, which sounds amazing, mm -hmm. Um, he and kind of, he kind of has done that. And we got, we got to have you over to our, uh, my, my, you know, my mom, obviously uh -huh. we've got to come to, to the house, uh, now and we'll have to have a dinner there in Corpus because, uh, the backyard has been my dad's Opus. own. Yeah. It's yeah. been his own way of, uh, of doing that. He's, you know, he's got a, a bar he, and, and a lot of it, he has a kitchen out there. He has a an bar. outdoor kitchen, which is call, like call what it. you were describing and they call it leftovers. Leftovers. <laughs> so it's from all the jobs that he did. And uh -huh. so it's Chinese marble but on the ground. But it's beautiful. It's, wow. it's Chinese marble. Because he did a job out here for a, a guy that owned a really... And I, uh, owned the harbor. He, he actually bought the harbor mm -hmm. and then he built a big house here. My dad mm -hmm. had done some work at the end of his career for it. Mm -hmm. um, he built a great... Uh, fence here, the wall. The, they yeah, called it the, the Great yeah, Wall. The Great Wall. I, yes. I, you know, it's crazy. I'm going to mess this up because I don't know exactly which direction. My dad actually drew on a little piece of paper to show me where, <laughs> in relation to the art center, that house was. But I'll figure it we'll out. We'll find later. it and we'll bring it to you tomorrow. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But at, at any rate, it was uh, the, what you were saying. We was should go there like, tomorrow and actually look yeah. at it. Okay. Yes. We can do that. I yeah. hope you, yes. I'll help you find it. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, so everything you said resonated because it. It sounded eerily familiar yeah. to Robert. That, yeah, uh, everything that you were explaining about your dad. And one other question I do have, and and again, this anybody who listens to this is used to tangents. So the fact that you stop for a <laughs> stop for a, a little question break, it it sounds like you are interested in art all along. Why? Yes. Well, <clears throat> I'll be honest with you. I wasn't really interested in it until I went to the University of Texas. Okay. You know, I didn't know I was going to like it so much or be so passionate about it. But because, um, you know, I had I had been to uh, the Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City. And so uh, in, in travels with my family, you know, we would go to 
you know, do attractions together. And the one attraction I do remember that was vivid when, from my childhood was that besides going to the beach in, uh, in the, on the island right here where, you know, your backyard <laughs> where you grew up, uh, that was one of the places we vacationed. Um, but we also went to Mexico City because my mother's brother lived there and uh, with his family. And uh, so during those trips, you know, my aunt, who was a, you know, a arts and culture fiend, my, um, my uncle's uh, wife, uh, Carmen, she would take us to all of these things. And I remember vividly that visit to the Museo de Antropología in uh, Mexico City and, um, and how fascinated I was by all the antiquities. But we never went to an art museum the whole time, the several visits that I did to Mexico City. And, you know, and I lived in a very rural area in northern Mexico on the border with uh, Texas. So there weren't any cultural institutions there that you could, you know, visit. <clears throat> so when I signed up to go to college at University of Texas, uh, I was only 17 and it was 1981 and Austin was a tiny little town back then. Mm -hmm. In fact, I remember the first summer, I love summer school because there's less people mm -hmm. to uh, fight with or compete with. Mm -hmm. And um, so that first summer, I remembered how vacant the city felt because all of the students, the 50,000 UT students had gone, you know, to spend summer with their families or to travel. But I was there. And the first, uh, I remember the first time I walked into what was called the Huntington Art Library, which is now the Harry Ransom mm -hmm. Center. And I walked into that, that space. I was just like, I don't know, I had like some time in between classes. I'm like, I'm going to go look at this building and see what it's, what it's about. And I walked into the building and I started strolling through the galleries. And in the far distance, I saw this abstract painting by Robert uh, Motherwell. Uh, and I was really taken aback by it. Uh, it was as big as the wall was. It seemed like to take up almost every inch of that wall. It was gigantic. First of all, I had never even seen a painting that big. So the the scale was impactful in and of itself. But the abstraction, although it was abstraction, it said something to you. It's almost like letters that were trying to come out of the painting and that were trying to give you a message in your mind or a shape that was trying to reveal itself. But you never, you know, I never found out what those words were. I never found out what that shape was. And it doesn't matter. The fact of the the fact that's important about that experience, at least for me, was that I was really taken aback by the, the painting, its scale, its message, everything about it. And then I started walking around some more, and then I started seeing um, some works by Latin American artists that I had read in textbooks in Mexico when I was in school. And later on, I found out that the University of Texas uh, was the single largest uh, holder of Latin American. They had the largest Latin American art collection, I think, in the United States. I think that was the what I remember reading or hearing from one of the docents. Uh, but then even further into one of the other galleries, they had these, you know, they were arranging themes. Obviously, these galleries were 
kind of like this my house is yeah. right now and then i walked into a place where they had paintings but they were like photorealism so it was a painting and i remember this painting vividly it was a, a it was a woman well it was a woman and some other people like on a street in a very major city where all of the reflections are coming off the sunlight in a bus that was passing through on the street. There was a lot of movement in this thing, and I really thought it was a photograph. Of course, then I read the legend, and it was not. It's It was a painting. It was a painting. In oil, and it was so real. Yeah. And you felt like you were right there standing next to that bus in that street corner in some big city, whichever one it was. And, I mean, I was smitten so so that and that alone is something that is for me a hard well it's not a hard lesson it's just a, an important one is that people's tastes there's a wide range mm -hmm. of tastes and some people really fall into well i only like this i only like that now of course i look in your house i know you have a wide range of tastes. It could be, you know, abstract minimalism. It could be now hyper-realism. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some of those too. And the first time I ever saw one of those hyper-realistic ones, I found myself kind of turning my head like a dog. Like, mm -hmm. is that is that a painting? And then it was like, I would try to look for one piece that would make me realize that it was a painting. But it was hard to do because they were so good at it, mm -hmm. you know? Yes. And it's just mind blowing the range of hyper real all the way back to minimalist abstraction, you know? And that's, that's a, obviously a big theme of the Allberg yeah. film too. But, but, um, anyway, so that day, so that day you're in there, what is it? So you, you got struck by an image with this first big abstract painting and then you're smitten with the hyper real. What, did that what did, spur yeah, your, did you start, I mean, you I started going to the Harry Ransom Center okay. or the Huntington Art Library, rather, uh, on a very regular basis and learning more about what exhibits were coming and what was changing. And then they had, um, you know, some movie type exhibits. Uh, I want to say it was Gone with the Wind or something like that. They had costumes and things of a theater, theatrical nature, which was also fascinating, you know, to me. And... Um, and then from there, I was like, okay, well, there's other culture, arts and culture institutions. And then there's the art school at the college. It, it had its own gallery. So I started, was frequenting these spaces. There was the Laguna Gloria, you know, yep. art museum. Beautiful. And, so uh, beautiful. And what they did there. And I was never really interested in becoming an artist or learning how to paint or how to draw or any of that. I just wanted to look at beautiful things. That That's was your really outlet. That was my outlet. Oh, wow. And so that was college. That was college. It was what year was it? 1981. But okay. your major was what? What were you business, majoring in? Yeah. So you're a business major, but you loved. Man, yes. And it never, you never, it never struck you to think, I love art in this way, but I'm majoring in an area that is not related to this, to this area that brings me a lot of joy or reflection. Oh, Yeah. It really did not. I mean, no. I, you know, I, I knew that I was good with, I was going to be good with finance, okay. which was, you know, the area that I focused on. And did uh, you have any inkling whatsoever that it would ever circle around and that your finance skills would merge with your love for art? 
I never did. No, no. Not for one minute. You think wow. it was just the time or maybe the way that you were raised to believe that um, the things that you love and are drawn to aren't necessarily the things that you're going to pursue as a career? I mean, I think the expectation was that you go to college and then you come out and then, you know, you that it turns into some practical job that mm -hmm. you make money so that you can sustain yourself so that you don't have to go, yep. mother, I need money, you know, or yeah, something like that. Yeah. And so maybe there was a little bit of that, but mm -hmm. I never really thought about it that way. I was like grateful that my parents, you know, wanted to pay for my education. I was very grateful for that. Yeah. And, uh, and I think anybody who, whose parents paid for their education without getting into debt are grateful for that as well. And I, I mean, I was not going to go and get a master's. I wanted, I wanted to go to school and then go, go to work as mm -hmm. soon as I could mm -hmm. and, and use, and then develop some practical experience in the field, mm -hmm. whatever field that ended up being. Mm -hmm. So a tangent that we don't need to explore right now, but maybe later is, um, I wonder how much that is a result of being raised by I'm Filipino. Mm -hmm. And so when my mom came from the Philippines to the U S it was, you're going to go to school, you're going to get good grades. You're going to get a very practical job that will earn you a okay. secure income. And that's the way life is. Mm -hmm. Even though you love to do these different things, that's the trajectory that you need to pursue. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it makes me wonder about how much of an impact that has on um, young people that are trying to figure out what they want to do for a living and, um, maybe the influence that their parents have, mm. uh, especially if they are not from this country. Yeah. I, honestly, to be, uh, perfectly, you know, fair about it. Uh, I think we go to school too early in this country to college. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it would be valuable if we were shown, that, hey, you may want to go and get some practical experience mm -hmm. and work or volunteer or join the Peace Corps or something like this. Mm -hmm. At least learn what you don't want to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Learn what you don't want to do. And then when you've had some seasoning in your life, yep. then you come back and you're like, okay, now I know I want to study this. I want to be a social worker because yeah. I was in Africa and with the Peace Corps and I was doing these wonderful things and that lights me up. And what lights you up is what you're going to be good at. You yeah. Know? Um, so, I mean, I was 17 when I went to college. So, you, you know, I was pretty young, but I had worked in my father's, my father and my family had all these businesses. Uh, and so I had worked in those businesses. So I didn't arrive there with no experience at all whatsoever. I had mm -hmm. already had some work experience mm -hmm. um, as low level as it might have been, but it was still experience. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, so, and there's so many different tangents I can think of, but mm -hmm. I guess for right now, just to just to stay stay on some type of path, we were <laughs> at we were at good job 2017, um, and Harvey hit. So now I, I just want to backtrack for a second. Yes. By that point, you had already worked here. For well, two you years. had been in you had been in finance, or you had been in business for. I've been oh. in a variety of. Um, I've worked in a variety of businesses. The one directly before that, I was uh, the VP of operations for a biotechnology company in okay. Pennsylvania that took me to work 
you know, to many different places across the United States, but also in, in countries in Europe and South America. And, uh, and I love that job. It was a wonderful yeah. opportunity. It's, I learned a lot in that, in that career path. And that was really a deviation. You know, I moved to Pennsylvania from San Antonio, I think in 2001 or two, it was right after the, uh, the attacks in New York, uh-huh. uh, mm-hmm. of the towers. And then there was the uh, anthracis, anthrax mm-hmm. scare that mm-hmm. happened. And so the government had devoted a lot of, um, um, allocated a lot of funding for the investigation of bioterrorism and, and such. And so I went to work for a biotechnology company oh. in Pennsylvania okay. that was studying, you know, agents that could be used as bioterrorism, anthracis being one of them. Oh, okay. Wow. That makes so much sense. I didn't know that before, but okay. Yeah. So that's Were what you took in biotech before that? No, no, I was no. in rehabilitation before that. Wow. Okay. I was, and, but I ran a whole bunch of programs and businesses in, in rehabilitation in San Antonio and Austin for like 17 years. And, and after 17 years, I knew that was time for a change and this opportunity came up. And of course, I took it and I always wanted to live in the East Coast. It was a passion that I had and I'm glad that I did it. It was, you know, I got to experience all of the East Coast. Yeah, including the <laughs> including six the, months of winter instead yeah. of six months of summer that yeah. we have here. Right. Yeah. But I really love being there. I spent a lot of time in New York and traveled to Montreal and Toronto. and Those uh, are great cities too. And Philadelphia, which is one of my favorite cities in the East Coast. Or the Mid-Atlantic, that's more Mid-Atlantic. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. so it was really fun being there. And it was fun, you know, with the job to travel to places like Vienna and Buenos Aires mm-hmm. and um, and um, into uh, Wisconsin, you know, because we built a mobile laboratory uh, for the Air Force in Wisconsin with uh, Pierce Manufacturing. And so it was just, you know, it was a great 13, 14 years of my life, but it was time to come back and to come home. We, uh, we have a friend, uh, that we grew up with in, in Corpus. His name's John Paul. Hey, John Paul. And, um, we, he lives now outside of DC. Mm -hmm. So we were in DC. We actually happened to go there quite often. It seems like we were there in October of 22 and we're walking around we're walking around not the the washington monument but you know the pool the reflecting pool Mm -hmm. and we're catching up this is like the way we're going to catch up is we're walking around there and he says you know we're catching up over different things and he goes you know we're in our 40s now so what's your second career going to be Mm -hmm. you know he said we've we've kind of he said it's a matter of fact yes like like for sure, you're going to change careers. Yeah. It's just a matter of have you thought about what it's going to be. Yeah. And it made me feel like being 20 again, because when you're 20, everybody's asking you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Right. And in this case, it was like, what are you going to do next? Yeah. And lo and behold, a year after that, we started Griffin, Griffin Co. And I quit, yeah. I quit teaching and it was kind of odd, but it almost sounds comparable in the sense that, uh, you, ch- I mean, you, you, changed complete direction you know i did and i've done that twice in my life yeah yeah that's what i was gonna say yeah (laughs) what's the other time 
Well, from rehabilitation to biotechnology oh, yeah. and okay. then biotechnology. I mean, they're yeah. not one thing doesn't have anything to do with the other. The thing that runs constant is business. You know, yeah. how do you run a business? Yeah. And I don't run the Rockport Center for the Arts as a nonprofit. To me, that's just a filing status with the Internal Revenue Service. It doesn't mean you can't, you know, have surpluses and that you can't have carryover balances into the new year or that you can't take your surpluses and save them to plan for the future mm -hmm. and i think those are the like if someone were to, were to ask me what are the things that you've done well here in rockport i would say those are some of them mm -hmm. for sure mm -hmm. okay so that does put us back at 2017 and in 2017 anybody in texas especially south texas knows that coastal bend coastal mm -hmm. bend we got we got hit very hard with hurricane harvey yes and anybody anywhere near rockport knows that rockport was devastated by it yes what happened you you can i'll let you tell the story and i know we've talked about this before yeah. but this maybe set that stage well i mean i think there's two me's there's the me before the hurricane and then there's the me after the hurricane before the hurricane i was just a little boy you know just <laughs> playing around you know not really grown up or uh, or trying to grow up too fast, too much, even though I was uh, over 50 years old. But I think the storm really uh, matured me completely. It just changed me into somebody else. I don't know how it happened. I, I don't <clears throat> have a recollection of the evolution of how I became more of a man, you know, than a, in a, than a young man. Uh, through that, but it was a real challenge. Uh, there were some real threats ahead for the organization, and uh, I had to figure out a way to position the organization uh, in a, a way that it would be it would perpetuate because uh, the organization was uh, about to be 50 years old in 2019, and to me, it was really important after the hurricane that we continue, and so. So many things happened, thousands of decisions were made, some were mistakes by me and some were not, but decisions needed to be made and we needed to move forward. And, uh, and in moving forward, I, my strategy was that we had 100 days to be back in Rockport. We had a 100-day plan and part of the 100-day plan was <clears throat> that we were going to jumpstart our programs right away. And our, the first program we jumpstarted was one of my favorite programs called Free Family Saturdays. And Free Family Saturdays is this space that we create, the safe space we create for families for you to bring your niece or your nephew or your daughter or your grandchild. And there is a, uh, a art activity that has been planned. It's a drop-in. You can come at 10 or you can come at 11 or you can come at three o'clock in the afternoon. It doesn't matter. And then the grandparent with the granddaughter creates this project and then they get to take it home. So it's a real like wholesome family uh, program, just like the many others that we have there. We have a All lot free of free or do the and it's completely free, completely free, thus okay. free family Saturdays for oh, duh, yes. yeah, so, <laughs> Hello. yeah. And so, you know, children of our community come and it's also a way for us to engage with, you know, our younger 
customer in the future, they might be a member, they might be a donor. And the way the art center has always worked has been to reach out to families uh, and, and participants of families of different age groups. We serve senior citizens as well as we serve millennials, as well as we serve, hmm. you know, kids in high school, as well as we serve children uh, that, you know, from challenging socioeconomic backgrounds in uh, grade school. And, and we're very proud of that. So we partnered with Winway Gallery, which is directly across the street from the art center now. They did not seem to have damages because, you know, our building was completely destroyed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was nothing left. And I told, I challenged my staff, I said, go and partner with our community partners uh, and find, figure out a way to get programs started. Because what we need to do, our job is to create a sense of normalcy in our community. We need to offer something for the families that they can come in on a Saturday and they can just forget about what they've been doing all week, mm -hmm. which is, you know, bleaching their bathroom or cleaning their house <laughs> or trying to find out what they can rescue, all of those kinds of things. And, um, <clears throat> and so that was very successful. And then 30 some days later, you know, we had a show that I've talked to both of you about birds and art. It's a very important exhibition that Ken Olberg has been a part of, and he's been a master artist for that uh, program for many years. And, um, and so that was supposed to come to Rockport to our destroyed facility uh, on the hurricane was August 25th. And the show was supposed to arrive the first week of September. So like between the third and the seventh, I, I want to remember, I want to say. Um, and obviously it was, we had nowhere to accept the show. We had no roof. We had no electricity. We had no running water. We had nothing. And so I called um, Kathy Foley, who was the director of the Lee Yockey Woodson Art Museum in Wausau, Wisconsin, the originator of the show. And I said, Kathy, I can't accept this show. Um, we've had a hurricane and the building is, is a mess. And, uh, you know, there's no, we don't, we, we just don't, cannot accept the footprint of the show because, well, first of all, the artwork is going to get damaged. There's no electricity. There's no air conditioning. There's mm -hmm. nothing. And she said, well, it's already on its way to you. Uh, from Jamaica, New York, from the Roger Tory Peterson oh my gosh. Uh, Museum in Jamaica, New York. And so, and Roger Tory Peterson yes. is a very important figure uh, to Ken Olberg, yes. as you already know. So there's a little tie in there. And so that's where the footprint of the show was being driven to us. And so Kathy Foley called the Roger Tory Peterson Museum and redirected the show back to um, Wausau, Wisconsin. And while all that was going on, I was on the phone with Joe Schenk of the Art Museum of Corpus Christi. And I said, I need your help. I had a donor uh, who's very important in my life. Uh, she's now passed away. Her name was Jeannie Wyatt. And she said, you have to figure out a way to host this exhibition. And she was right. Uh, because hosting it 
became the renaissance of the art center. So I think my instinct to get things started right away, not to like wallow in disaster mm -hmm. and, oh, poor me, what are we going to do? It's like, let's roll up our sleeves mm -hmm. and let's get to work and okay. figure out what our role is in the community now that the hurricane has happened and how we're going to move forward. And Joe Shank said, I'm going to cancel a show in one of the galleries and you can bring birds and art here. And then we worked out the logistics with Kathy Foley in Wausau, Wisconsin, and with the museum here in Corpus Christi, you know, a little bit later. And then the show opened on September 28th of 2017, and it was supposed to open at the Art Center on September 13th of 2017. So not even a week later. Yeah. So yeah, like two weeks, mm -hmm. you know, more or less. Mm -hmm. No, I'm sorry, a week. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was for many of us that were from Rockport. I ran, I rented some buses to pick people mm -hmm. up here at the Salemis Ace Hardware mm -hmm. and to take them to uh, Corpus Christi so they could see the show. Mm -hmm. And there were two buses, I think, that brought, I don't know, uh, 60 or 80, 70 people. I don't wow. remember. And for many of, of us from Rockport, it was the first time we had seen each other since the storm where we were all cleaned up. And, oh, wow. And and the opening was a huge success. The show was seen by 18,000 people wow. uh, during its two-month run, two-and-a-half-month run. And uh, it was it just cemented our story as a renaissance, renaissance darling in Rockport. Mm -hmm. Wow. I don't, you know, I know we talked about this when we did the interviews for the film, <clears throat> but I don't think I was, I don't think I was piecing it all together exactly that way, um, and I and I, I definitely didn't know that it ended up in in the corpus that you worked that out. Uh -huh. And uh, okay, I see now, and this is totally not necessarily have to be a part of the podcast, but I, see, I almost feel like maybe I need to do an interview with you and 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 Joe Shank mm -hmm. to talk about that because right. that is such a big because so much of the actually part, a good part of the Ulberg film is going to showcase what we saw that night that you guys auctioned off that that pe that, that maquette piece. and then the kingfisher and all you know maritime right. mm -hmm. and I'm sure Joe would love to do an interview with uh, you and, and with me. And um, he's now uh, retired from the museum, but um, he's still very much a part of the arts community in Corpus Christi and the Coastal Band. Wow. That's such a that's such a cool story. And it's such a cool, you know, when you're in any industry, whatever that industry is, if you're doing a job that you know someone in the other town does the same job as you for that town, when you guys can help each other or when you, when you can help each other out, yeah. it's always a, a well, nice thing. Well, you know, this required a coordination with four institutions. Okay. Our institution, um, the Roger Torrey Peterson Museum, the Lee Yockey Museum, Woodson Art Museum, and then the Art Museum of Corpus Christi. And I can mm -hmm. tell you, these things don't happen. Mm -hmm. They just don't happen. It was Jeannie Wyatt was right. I mean, she's like, you have to make this show happen. It doesn't matter. She said, I will send you money to make it happen. Just tell me what you need. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, her passion was really for <clears throat> her passion for the show and for it to happen was very 
<clears throat> important for me. I'm getting mm-hmm. choked up thinking about her words because I still she have. Knew, she knew she knew more and 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 didn't want you to squander this opportunity. Yes. She's like, this could be life-changing for you and the community that you live in. So make it happen. Yeah. She I knew s- she needed to do I that. I still have her text, even though she's, you know, now deceased. Yeah. I still have that text saved as a photograph, you know, where she said all mm-hmm. those things mm-hmm. that were so marvelous, that were so uh mm-hmm. inspiring. Yeah, that so I I'm super curious about a couple things. I think um I think what people listening need to understand is that this show, when you get selected to be one of the venues to host the exhibit, you're one of what, four in the country? Yeah, it could be six. Okay. And um it, you you know, the institution does wanna so the the accepting institution, in other words, the art center, mm-hmm. does want to have to show it. It has to fit into your schedule. Mm-hmm. There is a licensing fee for the show and all of that. It's it's not like you you know. It, well, and the other thing is you have to have the the correct facilities to house this work because it's a half a million dollars worth of artwork, mm-hmm. and you know you have to have the right climatic conditions inside of the building, the humidity controls, the, you know, the air conditioning, all of that has to be right in order for you to be, you know, deemed uh, a worthy organization to host the exhibition. Mm -hmm. So it's not, um, it's not just a check mark and here's the check and let's do it. It's a commitment on your part too as the hosting venue. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You have to follow all of the rules and um, yeah. Mm-hmm. We just hosted it in January through April of this year, um, and it was in, a, in the new art center. In the new art mm-hmm. center. So one of the things that I, the stories that I wanted to talk, because I love telling stories, yeah. as you can probably tell. I love it. It's and perfect we love for podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> Here I am, married to this microphone, <laughs> and um, but one of the things that I wanted to tell when we opened the new building was to go back to that renaissance moment Mm -hmm. that we had in uh, September of 2017. I wanted to say now we have the the facility that is worthy of hosting this exhibition. So we brought birds and art from the prior year to here this year. And it was a tremendous success. And Ken Olberg was part of that exhibition. In fact, his little piece that we, we had there it was a tiny sculpture, not taller than uh, a, a page, you know, eight and a half by 11 page, uh, was called Bluebird Sings. And it was so well loved that we sold that piece four times, you know, because when it's sculpture, you can make more than one. It's yeah. not like a painting. A painting is an original, but a sculptor can make, you know, uh, an addition of, let's say, 10 or 12 or whatever's whatever. determined, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And so we sold four of Bluebird Sings. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. And the great master was in shock that we could sell that. Many <laughs> it, was he? <laughs> yes, he was. Oh, man. He goes, how do you bloody do it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you are now officially the second person to do a Kent Olberg impression. <laughs> oh, good. Who was the first? Yes. Guy Harvey. Oh, wow. Guy yeah. Harvey did it. And bloody was in that too. Yes. <laughs> bloody and You're other You're a bloody words. genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he does. Say, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. loves to say that. Yeah. And, you know, it's so funny because and, and he's such a 
they're both so fun. Him and Vera both are just so fun to be around. But we were showing him some footage from the from the um, from the movie, and and we were interviewing Guy Harvey. And Guy, he was watching the interview with Guy Harvey, and Guy said, "You know, I collect Olbergs myself." He said he's given me a couple, and I've actually bought a few on the secondary market. Uh, and he said, and you know, I don't buy it for this reason, but it is like having a, a gold bar, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's always increasing in value. And, and Kent goes, you know, yeah, he rubs his hands together <laughs> like this. <laughs> and he looks over at Beerla and he goes, you hear that? My sculptures are like gold bars. And Beerla goes, well, they would be if you'd let me price them correctly. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. That's always the fight between those two. Oh. Is how much is it going to cost? But oh. uh, yeah, yeah, I side I side more on her side than on his. Oh, <laughs> oh Lord. This is, this is the same debate that we have in our household, too, of what's your time worth? What's your, well, what's your get, skill worth? That you know? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I feel like that actually segues perfectly into something that artists aren't good at they're just it's not really there's i mean i'm sure there's some i'm sure there's some exceptions to this rule sure but they they generally myself included don't know what their Mm -hmm. time's worth they generally don't know what their work's worth and or I don't they know do, what, but they feel uncomfortable asking. Or, or for, there's that. Or there's or, that. Or saying that this is the value of it. And yeah. and yeah, and part of, you know, it's not certainly not the only thing that 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 we wanted to talk about today, but part of the reason that I wanted to be able to have this podcast is because in the short time that I've known you, it's clear that you're absolutely the greatest ally to an artist that there could be because you understand not only what it is worth and, and well, he values it, you clearly, know how to value right? it. And, and you also understand that it's maybe not as hard a conversation <laughs> as artists think it is to be able to figure that out. Now, I don't know, I guess maybe if I could ask it in this way, it's if you were an artist yourself, what would you do? to make a living. If you were, say, a painter, Mm -hmm. what would be the first things you would do financially to figure out how to become a a paid painter, sustained painter? Yeah. Um, Well, um, it's a very hard job. I mean, I really love artists of all kinds. I take my hat off uh, to all of them for wanting to do what they do because as we were talking earlier before we started the podcast, you know, an artist is putting their raw self out there on the canvas or whatever it is that they're doing. And I'm sure that uh, people like Ken Olberg, you know, doesn't need any advice on on pricing or the value of uh, his work or anything like of that nature or marketing even because he's a very good marketer. He knows how to talk about himself and the work and, you know, he's aligned himself with the right institutions in order to promote uh, his career. But, you know, that's different than what an emerging artist has to deal with. Mm -hmm. An emerging artist has to deal with, you know, sometimes maybe conflicts within him or herself about is this work good enough to be put out there and to give it to a gallery to hang it so that it can be sold. Uh, That's always... I know a difficult questions for a difficult question for a lot of artists is the work good enough? And then, you know, how do you price the work? 
And uh, uh, I know that at universities now, um, I know that at Texas A&M Corpus Christi, they teach their young artists that are going through the fine arts program, whether it's BFA or MFA, you know, about that. That is one of the classes is the, the business. That's great. And I think, but that's new. It's not been there forever. Mm -hmm. It is like in the last 10 years that schools have been worried about how do we turn artists into artists that are earning a living, Mm -hmm. you know, through their art. Uh, I think about the Southwest School of Art in San Antonio and what they have done uh, with their BFA program. I know that was always the inclination is how do we take these students that are studying their BFA and how do we turn them into working artists? Um, And, uh, you know, we hire them as interns in the summer to help us with our programs. So I've talked to many of these young uh, men and women about, you know, what is it you want to do with your career? Do you want to go the nonprofit route? route? Do you want to go the education route? Or do you want to be a studio artist that's creating and selling and working in the gallery system and all of those kinds of things. And the great majority of them go not the third way, which is the um, the way of uh, becoming an artist that's producing and showing their work. Uh, it, I mean, almost immediately from the time somebody graduates from college, from a BFA program, you know, they almost most of them seem to steer the way of education Mm. because, you know, like I said earlier, you know, I was trying to um, study something that would turn into a career where I could make a living and I didn't have to go knock on my mother's door to say, mother, I need money because I don't have any money. And so I understand, I understand that. Um, My brother, uh, Jorge himself, who's a, a visual artist, uh, you know, he had a job for many years and and he 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 studied at Southwest School, Southwest University in San Marcos. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's what it's called now. I've forgotten the name. Oh, oh mm-hmm. I, it was Southwest Texas. Now it's uh, Texas, Texas State. State, Texas mm-hmm. State University. Yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you for correcting me. And uh, so he studied art there, but he you know, he didn't get a full degree there and he wanted to go straight to painting. And, you know, he's successful now, but I mean, now he's 52 years old Mm -hmm. all that journey took, you know, to get to where he didn't need a full-time job or a part-time job uh, to get there. That took like over a decade, over a decade and a half for him to get there. And now he's working and he's selling his work and he's established and he has galleries he works with and all of that. But that's not easy. And uh, again, it's it's a lot of work. And then you have to have the right connections. Mm-hmm. And then there's the marketing side of it. A lot of artists, and then there's the finance side of it. A lot of artists are not into marketing their <laughs> own work. So that's why I tell artists. You just give it away. <laughs> yeah. Or they give it away. Yeah. That's why I always tell artists, if you live in a community that has a uh, a nonprofit arts organization that can connect you to their constituents, because like, for example, at the Arts Center, we have, you know, we have a lot of members. We're a membership uh, organization. And so some of our members are artists and the other there. Some of the other members are donors, major donors to the capital campaign. 
Some of the other members are patrons, you know, people who collect and want to come to the openings and all of that. And so, and then we're in the middle, we're in the middle of the artists and the donors and the patrons and the art collectors. And so what we do is we bring the artists together with the people that can acquire the work. And I'm very proud to say that through July of this year, our sales in our art galleries were exceeding uh, $300,000. A lot of those went to the Ken Olberg show because mm. it was a very well-selling exhibition. But every single show we have there, you know, we have sales from. And it's uncanny to me how that even happens in a little town of 10,000 people. But we have a passionate community. We have passionate donors. We have passionate collectors and art patrons that want to acquire work from uh, local artists. And uh, so that's why it's important to, for artists to seek not only one avenue, but as many avenues as they can seek. How important do you think, one thing that is very evident to Matthew and I about you in particular is that you're a great connector. So mm -hmm. we've seen you in your element. You know, we went to the um, big well, was, 4th of July. It was, um, it was the gala. The yeah, art gala. Game, the art the auction gala. Yes. Game. Yes. Yeah. yeah and, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank oh you my gosh. Thank you for having us. And so <laughs> the thing that is evident as we, you know, enter and, and surely Matthew's mom came with us and she was ecstatic to be a part of it too, is mm -hmm. she said, look at Luis. He knows how he knows everybody. You know, she yeah. was so, so impressed by that. But I think that was um, uh, quietly, uh, intentional on your part of that, you know, the importance of, um, the person that is an investor or interested in, in investing in art and values it to connect them directly with the person that made the art. Right. So I'm curious about how, how that plays into the relationships or the community that you build, especially here in Rockport. You know, I've spent eight years and a half, I've been here a little over eight years, uh, cultivating relationships, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. only to benefit the art center, but to benefit every artist that is involved and a part of the, of the art center. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's how we built that building that's cost us $12.5 million. You know, we don't have just collectors and donors and patrons from Rockport that contributed to that. They're from all over the state of Texas mm -hmm. and uh, in some cases outside of the state of Texas, but majorly from all over the state of Texas. We had foundations that gave. And uh, so to the, towards the cultivation aspect of relationships, that's a really important part of it because I think people that um, want to come to the art center to look at art, they want to see something different you know we're not an art museum although we are a collecting institution we have a collection of sculptures which i know you have beautifully photographed um here in rockport and for your for your movie about olberg and four of them are olbergs as a matter of fact um but they want to see something different you know so a lot of times when you go to a museum and i'm not knocking anything down you might see uh you know a show every three to four months. And so our formula is a little different. Our formula is we have five exhibition spaces 
and we change them out every month and a half to two months. And so we're always, whenever you come to the art center, you're like, oh, well, what just happened here? You know, I just saw this show last week and now there's this new show. And so we're creating opportunities for collecting art uh, from different artists. And uh, it's the changeover that's really, really important. Mm. Wow. And I, yeah, that I mean, it's funny because my my artist mind doesn't I was thinking, oh, he showcases. So they showcase so many artists, which is fantastic. That's great. But the changeover allows the collectors to show up and see something new. So there's a reason to show up more than once in a quarter. Yeah. There's, that's the reason is because you're not going to see the same thing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You can come every month, Matthew, and see something different, <laughs> something totally different mm -hmm. because those galleries, we don't change them all at the same time. We do it in succession. Um, there is a master plan to all that I don't want to understand, but my curator is the one that came up with it. And, uh, but yeah, for example, we have two shows changing over in September and then one changing over in October, like almost two to two and a half to three weeks apart. Wow. And so we're always trying to show the collector something new. And, uh, and I think that sets us apart as also the fact that we have some pretty fantastic exhibition spaces. Oh yeah. I mean, it, that that alone and that's obviously going to be showcased in the film but it that alone was like pretty mind-blowing when i mm -hmm. when i walked in i said oh my god we're doing mm -hmm. these interviews in here look at this place yeah. you know mm -hmm. it's so incredible so so i had this person in from victoria texas which is you know an hour away from here they too have their own cultural institutions and they're like how did this mm -hmm. even happen yeah in rockport mm -hmm. how did this even happy happen and it's just, you know, we were very determined and our story became very national because of birds and art and because mm -hmm. of what I just told you earlier. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it really, you know, I really credit that one little phone call to Joe Shank with our complete renaissance. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and of course being, uh, prompted to do so by Jeannie Wyatt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. You, you, and, and everything, you know, in hindsight, you can, it's, it's wild to think that you can credit some, you, you look for the line of how did this happen? And you can track it all the way back to this one little deal. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's what's cool about movies is they usually accentuate that or show that. Right. So yeah, I definitely really want to get uh, something together to be able to do those interviews with the two of you. And, Sounds great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I didn't do this by myself. I mean, I want to tell you that I, you know, I've had some amazing board mm -hmm. chairs uh, from the time I got here until uh, today that have backed me up. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, cause I'm, I'm not, I'm just here by myself. You know, I, I don't have a kingmaker or anything like that. Mm. Uh, um, I work primarily alone and with my my team but a lot of the stuff that happened with the capital campaign and and the construction project was done in teams and very strong teams uh, the capital campaign was led by mary heim um, who was a wealth manager and so she was instrumental in helping raise all of these funds and then um there was somebody, uh, a local um, fellow, his name is Hugh Morrison, 
And he was president during the time that it was instrumental to get that government money of $5 million, without which we would have never been able to build the size facility that we did do. Which is kind of everything because you can now conduct all of these different facets mm -hmm. of, of art, everything from and hosting community. shows like, yeah, right. Everything right. from hosting shows like Kent's mm -hmm. to being able to have your Saturdays with the free family Saturday. Right, thing, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then having a venue where we can have concerts, you know, like we had Marsha Ball perform yeah. here oh, yeah. in Rockport. I mean, I don't think she would ever have come to Rockport. She's such a huge name, mm -hmm. but you know, our facility made that happen, mm -hmm. you know, and without that $5 million and without me working with Hugh uh, to get that uh, $5 million grant from the economic development administration and working with Mary Heim to rest, to raise the rest of the seven and a half million dollars. Um, this project would have never happened at its magnitude mm -hmm. that it is today. And now we're enjoying the fruits of its magnitude mm -hmm. because it's, it's a magnet for people. I mean, you know, in the month of June, we had 6,000 people come through those doors in the month of July. I think it was almost about the same six to 7,000 people. And um, in the old blue building, the one that I told you was destroyed by the hurricane, uh, the average visitation per month was 1,000 to 2,000. And then in the winter and in the, in the winter and in the spring, nobody came Dropped there. Dropped off. Nobody would come. It was always in the summer. So we would always depend on summer traffic. Now the traffic is real and the traffic is constant. It's That's every great. day of the week. And Sundays, we'll have 100 to 200 people on a Sunday. We're only open from noon to 4. But that place is stacked full of people. Everybody wants to come to the Rockport Center for the Arts. Wow. Well, and and something else that you did tell me in the interview, I'm not sure if you, you didn't say it today, but how, how many states did it cover this last year? Uh, how many people? All 50, for, right? Was it all? Yeah, in the month of uh, June, I was looking at the data, visitation data for that month. That's the most recent one that I've annotated. And uh, every single state, 50 states, That's we had several Rockport, countries Texas. in yeah, several countries in Europe and Australia, and uh, even Alaska and Hawaii were in wow. there, which is amazing that people are coming here. And our promotional campaigns, we're very blessed to receive government funding, primarily from the city of Rockport, but also the Texas Commission on the Arts and Aransas County. And uh, their funding allows us to promote everything that we do. And we have never spent more advertising dollars than we have this year. And it's, it's uh, showing its uh, benefits. Wow. Which also goes to show that, uh, you know, no, no matter what artists think about advertising, and I know artists have opinions about it, it works. Mm -hmm. It really does work. It works. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have a question that I want to ask about. Um, I think this idea of, of working with people that have other strengths than you is so important. So especially from the perspective of an artist who mm -hmm. thinks, you know, um, they, they're very, they're very open. Um, and they don't think in the direction of having to do something in a specific order. And so I wonder it can about be naive too. Yeah. yeah. Or, 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 mm -hmm. 
or the goal is really about the art and people right. experiencing it at whatever cost. Which it maybe is. it should be <laughs> so, for them, for the artists. Right. But what I wonder is when you say you are a part of a team that makes this happen, like how do you how do you ensure that you are are surrounded or working with people that have strengths that are needed to build this art community here in Rockport? Are you talking about the construction of the building or are you talking more in general, like the everyday operations? I just think the everyday operations, like yeah. how do you make sure that this place is thriving? And well, so and the, I think as the result, if the result is that you get people from all 50 States and now you're getting Europe, Australia and Alaska, Hawaii included in this, you know, in, in our, in our, um, attendance in how, yeah, how, how do, how do you get to that with a team and, and how important is it to find what, what, what you, you need yeah. and well, what you need? <laughs> and, and even to be more specific, honestly, okay. is like, we're a husband and wife team, right? He is all artist. There's nothing about him that speaks anything, but he is a pure I have, I have artist. A, I have a credit card that works. That's all I know about finance. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I am, like I told you earlier, very yeah. linear in the way that I think, but it works for yeah, us because right. we are completely opposite. And we know that that is a partnership that helps each other thrive. Mm -hmm. Um, when we look at Kent and Virla, it's evident to us that they're opposites too, mm -hmm. you know? That's and right. so I wonder from your position, um, it's not a, a, a marriage in, in this sense, but it is a, a definitely a partnership with the people that you work so closely it's even with. It's bigger because you're putting more than one, you know? Yeah. yeah. So how do you find the right people to work with? <sighs> it's so hard. Um, I mean, it's hard to bring people to work here. Uh, I mean, I moved here from Austin. You've heard that already. Um, my former curator, Elena, uh, moved here from uh, New York and um, she's now since left and we're in, in the search for a new curator. Uh, and then I think um, uh, the rest of the team uh, is mostly local. You know, my deputy director, Karen, has been with the organization even much longer than I have, like for 14 some years. And she has risen through the ranks into her position from an education director. And she moved to Rockport from, um, 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 I'm going to screw this up, <laughs> the state. It's near Oklahoma. Like, uh, what is that? Arkansas? No, uh, right above. Kansas? Uh, oh, we're talking about Kansas, Oklahoma, no, Kansas, Nebraska. Uh, Nebraska. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> from, she's from Nebraska. But she didn't come here and then go straight to the art center. I think she was doing something before that. So uh, at any rate, and then everybody else that's there in the team um, is a local for the most part. Um, we do have a new education director, Laura Vogel, and she just took over that. And she comes, you know, from, she also moved here from Houston, but then, you know, from moving here from Houston, you know, she was interested in getting a job with the Art Center, so we hired her. But it's difficult um, to find, um, you know, labor just here in our community. Sometimes we have to go to other communities. We've, you know, had employees that lived in Corpus Christi, for example, you know, uh, because there's a lot of uh, big talent pool. Um, but 
how how to make that work, I, I really don't know the answer for it. It's mm -hmm. just you work with people through training, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that I've managed here besides just being executive director. Like I've managed all the PR and marketing for the organization for all of eight years. And now I have Vanessa Ormsby, uh, who is our um, publicist, basically. And she's working with our other publicity team in Dallas to make sure to get the word out about everything we're doing. And she's doing a phenomenal job as well. And uh, she also uh, was hired through here locally. So I just think that, you know, I think when we were building and we were living in so many different little spaces and we were, I mean, we have rented every single building that was available to be <laughs> rented so that we could be open for business mm -hmm. since August 25th of 2017 to the date. Because my thing was, we're not, we're always going to be open. We're always going to have a showroom. We're always going to have the visual arts program. We're always going to have the educational program. And the way we did that was by renting spaces or renovating spaces that we owned. Mm -hmm. And now that we have this amazing facility, I think everybody just wants to work there. Yeah. And so it is attracting uh, people in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's people with the right talent. It's people that want to grow, that want to work with other creatives uh, in the room. I mean, it's really exciting to walk into our Wednesday team meeting, which happens at nine every Wednesday, and see this. Uh, we actually have four tables, just like the one we're at. Mm -hmm. This is a Florence Knoll table. It's wow. made in Memphis, Tennessee. Wow. And we have four of these all joined up together with chairs all around them. And I don't know, there must be 10 or 11 people sitting around there. We have a facilities manager. Now we have a venue manager for the Rockport Conference Center that came from the uh, American Bank Center in Corpus Christi, you know, uh, that area. Mm -hmm. And it's really fun to walk in there and see, oh, there's no room for me at this table. <laughs> oh, that's great. It's so full that's of great. people. And it's really exciting to see that. Mm -hmm. And um, one day I'll send you a picture of uh, yeah. one of these yeah. meetings where they all rap about, okay, what's happening this week? What are we doing? And I'd love having that space there. It was created like that intentionally as our little war room, you know, so mm -hmm. that we can discuss what is happening. But mm -hmm. I'm very blessed to have a really mm -hmm. great team that's of dedicated professionals that care as much about their job as mm -hmm. I care about mine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I don't know uh, how you book in a podcast better than that right there, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I know there's so much more to say and, and, I probably will text you with a bunch more questions and say we need to do this again, which <laughs> I'll just say now we need to do this again. We'll Absolutely. certainly get an interview. I'm happy to do it again. Well, thank you, first of all. And Nisa usually follows things. You usually have a top three. That looks I like a top, a top 23. <laughs> I do. I have okay. a top three am amongst all of these. Well, well tell Luis what you mean by top three. And so we normally wrap every podcast with – Somewhere throughout the conversation, there's nuggets to be had, right? Okay. Golden nuggets that people listening sh may as, take away. As as former teachers, we, yeah. you know, you you teach class. You know, life happens about fifty six minutes at a at a time <laughs> with with a class period. Yeah. yeah, and at the end of a fifty six minute thing, 
They Especially better walk out. That you want them to walk away with something. Yes. Yes. And if you can get top three, <laughs> it's then pretty good. You did a pretty good job that day. Oh, yeah. wow. Because okay. you know, yeah. you know, obviously people, kids go home and their parents ask them what they learned. They say nothing. Mm-hmm. So we try to walk, get them to walk away with something. Yeah. And we know we're talking to adults here, but same thing applies. Top yeah. three. What, so what is yours? The end of the podcast is kind of three things that stood out to us and uh from the conversation. So okay. I'll highlight each of those, but you too feel free to elaborate yeah. if you hear something that sticks with you or reminds you I of like this the format. conversation. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. So the first that stuck with me was really early on in the conversation. And you said that you had a plan for all of your art once, um, once you were ready to, to do something with it. And I just thought that the first one was make sure that you give back to the community that gives so much to you. It, it actually was a theme that we had from Kent's, uh, Kent and Virla's podcast too, was that, you know, if you love the community, it will love you in return. Right. And so what I heard you say, I think is important for people to, to hear and, and stick with too. I, I have nothing to add to that. Actually, that's perfect. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah. I mean, I think it should stay. I mean, I I think I've had a lot of people that have come to my home just like you have today and you know they're like wow you have a really you know cool art collection what are you going to do with all of this and you know one of the one of my um, you know one of the things i'll do when i retire is i'll go back to mexico and live in my home in in mexico in piedras negras mm-hmm. but i've also wanted also wanted i've lived in mexico city before and so i would like to have an apartment in mexico city and just go back and forth and even my brother Jorge wants to kind of be a part of that as well. But, you know, Mexico City doesn't have apartments, don't have walls, just like they don't have walls in Amsterdam apartments or <laughs> New York City apartments. So all this has, I mean, mm. somebody, you know, the thing about art, and I'm glad I'm thinking about it now because I didn't talk about it earlier, is that we're just the caretakers of it. It's you don't really own any of this. Mm-hmm. It's just yours for a little while. And then somebody else has to take care of it. So what I want to do is I want to make sure that somebody else takes care of it, mm-hmm. that loves it because they came to an auction and they bought it there at whatever price. Secondary markets can be brutal. It's probably not going to be what it was worth when I bought it. Um, but it doesn't matter. It's going to benefit an organization that I love, that I have nurtured and that it has nurtured me as well. Yeah. This is, I guess, why we do the top three. In case, yes. you, in case you didn't get a chance to say something else, there you go. Well, <laughs> I'll add I'll add to that and then I'll move on to number two. But um, I remember, you know, part of being an independent filmmaker, the challenge is always raising funds to be able to make the movie or just raising enough funds for you to be able to do it on your own at a very minuscule budget. To to not be poor when you're done with it. So oftentimes, (laughs) oftentimes when, and we've had many friends in Austin, there's so many independent filmmakers that do crowdfunding, you know, and I, I laughed because we had donated to a very good friend of ours. She was making a documentary. We donated to her documentary. And it, it was like, just, of course, we're going to donate. We're so proud of you. We want you to make this film. And then when it was time for Matthew to make his first, first feature film, we did a crowdfunding. Of course, we did a crowdfunding. And she gave us, I mean, double in return. Yeah. And that is the exact, like, that's the epitome of giving, giving and receiving. Mm-hmm. It's like, 
once you offer support in whatever way that is, you get so much more in return. You don't think a lot of people don't think about it, but they, they think, well, I can't do that right now. But if you believe in it, even if it's pushing you a little bit, do it because it, 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 then it becomes, you know, artists are kind of communists in that way. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. like, we're going to, we're, I'm a part, I want to be a part of your journey and then hopefully you'll want to be a part of mine. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that, that, that has been a really, that was early early. statement. That's continued to be true over and over. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I, and I also really love the idea that we don't ever actually own art. We're just the kids. You really don't. Mm -hmm. They're just, you know, because, you know, I was thinking, oh my God, what is my brother's the, uh, uh, my brother is going to be the one that, you know, like if something were to happen to me like tomorrow, then he'd have to deal with yeah. all this. Can you right. imagine? Right. Yeah. He'd probably be like, you know, going crazy thinking <laughs> about what to do. He might be if you don't and, lay and it he out. he doesn't know like all of the art artists that <laughs> mm-hmm. are here and their significance, but I do. And so yeah. I'd like to do this while I'm, you know, I'm still alive and mm-hmm. I'm still here to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to have a benefit, a great cause. Well, that, that's the other, that's the other thing that really is great is that you have an idea about how to do all of that. Mm-hmm. It's not just how to keep the art. It's how to use the art to continue what you believe in. Right. Yeah. So that actually ties absolutely directly into number two. So number two is not a statement. It's a question that you asked that I think everybody could probably sit and contemplate for a long time. But you said, how do you position I think in this case, art to perpetuate. And so I think that's a question that we all ask. I mean, no matter what it is in life, you might be a parent and you think, how do I, what do I need to do with my child to make sure that these values and beliefs perpetuate Mm -hmm. when I'm long gone? Or in this case, if you're an artist, how do you position this film in a light so that it perpetuates for others that will view it for now until, you know, hundreds of years from now. And so I just thought it was a great question for people to consider whenever, whatever it is they're doing, it doesn't necessarily need to be art. In this case it is, we're talking about paintings or film or sculptures, but I think it's a great question just to ask yourself, how do I position what it is I'm taking a day-to-day, you know, active role in to perpetuate beyond me well when you're trying to make movies Mm -hmm. that's one one thing that i've that that stuck with me in uh is that if you're gonna bother to make because it's hard to make a movie it takes a lot of time a lot of moving parts but if you're gonna bother to do it make one that's gonna change your life Mm -hmm. and if it changes your life it might change some other people's lives Mm -hmm. and if you're always aiming for that then you then I'm not saying you're going to make the mark every time, but if you're always trying for that, then maybe somebody walks away with something that they can talk about or think about, even if it's just for the bus ride home. Mm-hmm. And from there, other things may happen, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I just think about when you said that, I'd forgotten that I said that. <laughs> so thanks for reminding me. <laughs> and I don't have a clear answer for it, but you know, I just think, you know, if artists do what lights them up, what Mm -hmm. makes them happy, what makes you tick? If you put all that into whatever work you do, it will Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. self-perpetuate. Well, it's evident to us that you are a great supporter and collaborator 
to artists. So, um, if for what it's worth, we just want to say that out loud. Well, and, I, and artists, yes. I don't think know the answer to a lot of the questions that you ask. They themselves will see fit to to focus on the artwork. And again, I think maybe that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But they don't know what the hell's going to happen with it after. If the, and if they said they knew that, they're probably lying. You know, <laughs> and the, most of them, I think, would tell you they don't. And it would be more up to now. It's it's almost like once you finish a piece of art it seems like it's not even yours anymore it's mm-hmm. like now it's it's out there you, you have go. to release it out into the world yeah. i agree with that statement completely it's you know i, I always um i walk into some ga- galleries or places where they sell art in in and even in my own uh, establishment and i see nfs not for sale mm-hmm. and i'm like oh that's a mistake because you know <laughs> it is usually something i want to buy yeah. You know, it's always that one. Right? Yeah. And I think, you know, why would an artist want to hold on to something when the whole objective is to put it out there into the world? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's reasons that are valid for that artist, for that specific painting. Maybe it means it has some emotional value. So I don't want to be hypercritical about it. But it's like, yeah, I mean, art should be shared. It should be mm-hmm. out there. It should be democratic. And it should be enjoyed by everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If somebody wants to buy it, please sell it to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. That goes back to some yeah. lessons. Yeah. Um, okay. And then my third one is a really concrete action that you said for artists that are striving um, to succeed, right? As as a full-time, that's the career. That's how they make a living. Um, and you said it's really important to connect with nonprofit art organizations in your, maybe in your community or, you know, somewhat in the vicinity of where you live, Mm -hmm. um, so that you can get connected with their constituents. You can get connected with other artists. Um, and it, I think a through line that I heard from start to finish of this conversation was community is so critical. It is, it was really critical. Um, we're blessed here. We live in a very small community. Everybody knows everybody. I mean, there's no mistake in it. Every single artist that lives and works here is already known by pretty much everybody else. And a lot of it is through the galleries that we have in downtown Rockport, uh, but also through the art center. Uh, that's part of it. Um, but what I think is important about artists connecting with nonprofit arts organizations is that it's a nice, softer entry into the gallery world, which is a little more, um, it's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to say it's harsher or anything like that. But, you know, like a nonprofit's arts organization really typically will have nicer breakpoints. In other words, the artists will make uh, 60 or 70 percent of the commission versus the uh, the art space will make 40 or 30 percent or whatever that break point is in the gallery world it's a little bit different and the expectations uh, of the gallery world of the artist will also be different and then in a nonprofit arts organization such as the rockport center for the arts you know uh, we pretty much pay for all of the advertising we you know, we spend a lot of money on promoting the exhibitions. And that's not always what you're going to get in uh, in the gallery system because they don't have the free government funds that we receive to be able to buy media in major outlets. For example, this coming month, 
I mean, we have an art, uh, we have ads in art forum. We have ads in paper city in Houston, and we have an ad in art Houston. These are major Mm -hmm. publications, art publications that art forum is international. And it's the way we are decide we have decided to go is, you know, we want our PR to be impactful, not only in our community, it has to be impactful everywhere else. And as we begin to bring artists of different caliber, whether it's local, state, national, or international international caliber, you know, how you spend advertising money to promote these exhibitions mm-hmm. becomes more important. And what happens from that PR is people walk into the Rockport Center for the Arts and then they discover a local artist in the first floor because mm-hmm. that's where all of our membership art uh-huh. is at. And I mean, I'll see it in the sales reports. Uh, this piece, we sold it and it's going to somewhere in Maine, the state of Maine or whatever. And that means we introduced mm-hmm. local art to not a local person, not a local collector, not an art patron or a member, but to somebody who just came mm-hmm. in off yeah, the Yeah, that's got to be pretty, that's powerful, man, because, uh, you it's know. It's a story for them to tell. Uh, well, absolutely. But also it's one of those things where you're like, I, we reached somebody who's going to keep this in Maine that has mm-hmm. no connection to us whatsoever. It ain't like your mom bought it, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is, you know, <laughs> I, which I did sell some artwork to my mom once. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, mom. And that's why I think it's important for artists to reach out to their local mm-hmm. nonprofit arts organizations mm-hmm. and just about every major city, even mid mid range cities. I mean, there's some in, Corpus Christi, even like K-Space Contemporary, they have their own art center, the Corpus Christi Art Center. Uh, places like that is mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's in, incredible because, I, I, you know, I think a lot of people, the garage artists, for instance, you know, the, the artwork never leaves their garage. I can, I can relate to it. But if they really all want to do more than that, you know, I think that there's a lot mm-hmm. that they just don't know. They just don't know what to do. And that's right. a great place to start. So I, I, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, I Is guess my top three. Yeah, those were great top three. Yeah, and I felt like I was on David Letterman. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I love that show. Yeah, I still do. I watch him every once in a while. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. So funny. Well, well Louise, thank you so much. We'll commit to doing it again now, and then we'll figure out when. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thank you for having us to your beautiful home. Well, yeah. Thank you for coming, and I hope you felt the candor in in my words. Yeah, so, we loved it. Us. It was all from the heart. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, thank you, and come visit the, the Rock- Rockport Center for the Arts. Yes, that's right. Two hundred four South Austin Street, three six one seven two nine. 5519 rockboardartcenter.com. There you go. Be there. All right. All right. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.